All school year long, students in all educational settings work hard to produce products. Products for their teachers to evaluate, judge, and assess. Products such as writing samples, posters, video recordings, prototypes, and so much more. Many teachers are working hard to get more creative with the products that their students create in an attempt to increase levels of engagement. But with online learning seemingly becoming a new normal in education, maybe the idea of products being such a heavily weighted assessment form needs to see reform. This podcast is just that, reform of an assessment in education. Conversations with Campbell is an attempt to bring one of the most basic forms of communication to the forefront of assessment in education, having a conversation. So much knowledge and learning is exchanged in a conversation between teacher and student, or even student to student, that it cannot be overlooked as a genuine demonstration of a student's learning. Some might even argue that a conversation demonstrates a student's learning so much more than a product ever could. A great example of this would be a cliche science fair. Each entrant is judged based off their product a typical tri-fold Bristol board, and maybe even a working prototype. But most science fairs are won or lost when the judges converse with the participants, and the participants get to explain their work with the judges directly. Whatever side of this fence you fall on, you cannot argue that learning happens in conversation. So buckle up and enjoy Conversations with Campbell. interesting huh? just oh, wait no. wait wait, wait. Okay. there we go okay welcome into another episode of conversations with campbell uh this week we have the entire class with uh with each other and we are going to be exploring chapters 17 to 23 at the, the current moment in time we are waiting for the author of our story to come and join us so we are going to start our conversations, and whenever he appears, we are going to pivot and, uh, and, and change some of the conversations and make that more of a question and answer period directed to our author, Mr. Eric Walters. But for now, we are going to discuss chapters 17 to 23. Manal's going to get us going. Sorry, Manal's going to get us going. Uh, and bring something to the conversation. So let's hear it, Mono. So um, I feel like the relationship between Harv and Adam is getting a little bit tense. Ooh, okay. Like, like in chapter 20. Yep. Like, I think Adam says something along the lines of, like, do you like trust Herb or something to his mother, Kate? And then she says, like, don't you? And um, he's, like, hesitant. But, like, he knows that, like, uh, in the back of his mind, like, he does trust him. But there is still doubt. Yeah. Which is, like, really interesting to me. Because in the first book and in the beginning of this book, he's, like, he admires her a lot. And he, like, um, he kind of aspires to be, like, that, like, strong mentally and physically, you know? So this is something that I I'm, I'm not sure which group... I talked to this about, but the changing relationship of 
Adam and Herb, and specifically from Adam's point of view for obvious reasons, because he's our main character. But right. in our first book, what were can, can we give their relationship kind of like a student mentor type thing? Okay, so we can put that into that box, I guess, if you will, is that it was a mentor-mentee relationship, right? right? And then by the time we got to the end of the first book, it's almost like a spectrum, right? Like I know our listeners can't see my hands, but like we have Adams down at the bottom as the mentee and Herb's, you know, has this superior status right. of the mentor. And I feel like the entire book one, it was Herb stayed where he was, but Adam kept climbing to almost become level with Herb. Do you, do you did you guys feel that from book one? Yes, but I just don't think that he was like completely equal with him. Still, like right below. So still a little. Does anyone know what the word for that is? If if we have a superior and then. Inferior. Inferior. Good. So Adam was a little inferior to Herb in terms of that relationship, you felt? Like, um, yeah, I still do because, like, Adam, sorry, no, uh, Herb has so much experience and, like, we still don't know much about him. But from, like, what he's saying, I'm guessing he's either, like, a war veteran or, like, he was part of some type of, like, um, secret uh, agency or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, I still think Herb has, like, a, a huge advantage between the two, but Adam is still, like, growing. And in this situation, he's doing pretty well. So the other aspect about the whole mentor-mentee, there's that kind of hierarchy of superior-inferior nature of the relationship. But then typically with a mentor-mentee is that the mentee relies on the mentor to help guide and advise and, and whatnot. Do you feel that Adam still looks to Herb for guidance or for advice or for help? Uh, depending on the situation, yes. Like if it's like a crucial situation or something along the lines where like he he needs like some type of help, um, he'll go to Herb or, or just go to him in general because he kind of has like power, I guess, in the in the neighborhood. Okay. Um, I feel like smaller things, he doesn't go to him anymore and he doesn't discuss everything with him anymore. Okay. Necessary. Does anyone else want to chime in here just in terms of the Adam Herb relationship, the dynamics? Where, where, what's other people's opinions? Um, personally, I agree with Manal. I feel like. Adam has been like listening to her bless and he doesn't look to him for guidance as much now. So he's become a little more independent. In terms of his decision-making process and like, yeah. Okay. But I feel he still recognizes how important and valued Herb is, but just, I feel like Adam's learned a little bit from him and he can kind of make those smaller decisions by himself. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Um, let's go back to the, so Manal, you mentioned the conversation between Adam and Kate. So Adam and his mom, 
they get some time to talk. Yes? Yeah. Like, um, sorry, continue. Say it again there. You cut off a, for a second. I said, continue. Yeah, you still cut off. Uh, I said, continue. Oh. Um, yeah, I was just interested in, you know, how did they get this time? Why did they get this time? And then I thought that would be a good idea to talk about some of the things that they were talking about. What was our opinions on some of those topics? I feel like uh, one of the reasons the author um, had like a conversation between those two is to bring up like themes that were kind of left behind from before, like Adam's father. For okay. One. And um, like in book one, there was a time where um, Herb didn't tell uh, Kate and Adam, but they were basically going to go to the, like and move into the Peterson's farm with like a specific number of people from the neighborhood, right? And then they also like and like Adam says that like I wonder what he's not telling us or something. So like I feel like that's kind of a play on that. So I guess my question though is, why did this conversation come up? Why did the the, the topic of Herb come up in conversation between Adam and his mom? Like what was the what was their reasoning to be having this conversation? Typically, an event happens, and then you talk about that with other people, right? So, um, I wonder what the context was. Maybe we can have someone other than Mono jump in here. Unless Mono, you want to go nuts? Go go ahead. Um, I may not remember this correctly, but like. I think they brought up uh, when uh, Herb like, tricked Adam at the hospital when talking to Quinn. Yeah. So there was like a sort of like um, like conflict there. And um, Kate talks about that with Adam. And then that uh, brings up the conversation more about Herb and how like they don't really like, – like there's a time where Adam – was like really hesitant when she asks him do you trust him like we know that he trusts him like there is like a strong thing there but like there's still some hesitance uh because of recently yeah because like um i'm not sure about the events like that happened like recently i don't really um i don't recall them very well but um they do bring up the part where uh there was that whole thing at the hospital. Does anyone else have any comments on this? Uh, I think going back to um, Herb and, not Herb and Kate, um, Adam and Kate's conversation, something I found about Herb was that he knows what really makes people tick and then even connecting that to Brett. He knows what makes Brett tick and he knows what makes Adam tick as well. That's how in another example, we saw Adam was thinking about Brett because Herb made a connection to Brett and Herb, knowing what makes Adam tick, found out that Adam was thinking about Herb, which is another connection I found in Kate and um, Adam's conversation. Okay. So Herb is, when you say Herb knows what makes people tick, he's a very, very, very good observer. Yeah. That's what you're getting at there? Okay. Um, 
I also found in the conversation between Adam and Kate that they too are both really, really good observers as well. I think it's all three of those characters share that same trait or characteristic. Do you agree with that? Yeah, kind of. Okay, so explain the kind of in that. Uh, wait, can you repeat what you said? Because I kind of didn't understand this kind of. So my question was that I like my noticing, my observation is that the characters of Herb, Kate, and Adam all share the same quality or personality trait in the sense that they are all very good observers of others. For example, Adam has turned into a mini Herb simply by watching him do things, right? Like there's been times where we, you know, Herb controls the situation at the grocery store in book one. And now here we have Adam who controls the situation in the hospital room with Quinn, right? Like, but he only knows how to do those things through observation. So it seems like Kate and Herb are, are very, very similar in that. What do you guys think about their qualities or their personality traits of being really good observers i think that's what that's what makes them really good and that's why they're ahead of even mills you know like they're the head of controlling inside the fence that's what makes them really good so in your what i'm reading between the lines there harleen is that you feel a really good leader should have that trait should be a very good observer yeah and also, like, being a leader isn't always just observing. It's, like, observing and then learning off and then starting to speak more. That's kind of what I think. But Adam, he's starting to be a leader. At first, he started, like, observing, and then he kind of went through those stages of becoming a leader. So in your opinion, leadership is observing as much as you can and then applying what you learn through observation? Is that accurate? Yeah. How many people yeah. agree with Harleen on that? Let's talk about leadership. How many people agree that a leader should be someone that has a period of time where they're just an observer and they're collecting all this information and then when they're in the role of being a leader, they're applying all the things that they have taken in. So Gabby, Aditya, Jaspreet, Pari, Manal, um, uh, scheme, they all have raised hands. Okay. Does anyone want to elaborate on that leadership and just who, who do you think is the best leader of Eden Mills, I guess would be a great question. Or like, can you think of a great leader that you've experienced in your life and draw some parallels to that? Like, is, is, is that accurate description of a good leader? I personally think they, the leadership part of it, like they work well all together. So I can't really say like um, that just one person would make such a great leader because their teamwork right now is like really good. And as you said, like um, Kate, um, Kate, Adam, and Herb, they all have the that leadership 
um, trait of like observing. I feel like observing is very important because I don't think you can be a good leader if you don't know how to like read the mood or like it's valuable information to know what uh, the traits of people have. Like uh, we referenced this back to a chess game before. You can't win a game of chess if you don't know your pieces. Um, so good line. Yep, you can't win a game of chess without knowing your pieces. Love it. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of that, a person who knows how to play the game of chess, they would like beat you right away if you just keep on playing your pawns. So I feel like uh, Herb has done also a great job of like bring forth the right people on the um, in terms of like the night patrols and everything and just uh leading them in in the direction of like survival but at the same time adam again like there's the like the half and half between them because adam has like a soft more of a soft spot for like the people in need while herb is leaning a lot more towards survival but I feel like they have a fair advantage in the game of chess. Okay. Okay, there's a, sorry, go on. Yep. Sorry, elaborating, uh, like what uh, Gabby said, um, Herb is like more of survival, right? And like uh, Kate or Adam, they're, they're a little bit like more sympathetic, I guess, uh, towards people who like need help. Yep. And um, I feel like you need, out, like both of those traits in like uh one person in this type of situation because you have to be harsh but like at times you have to have good enough judgment to know that like these people are going to be like a very big deal right like i'm sure like i remember i not exactly but there were some situations where adam or uh kate have like stopped her from doing something very like uh harsh Rad. and that's been, like, yeah that's been beneficial for the neighborhood and like overall yeah, for sure. Like letting the people leave the the prisoners, right? Like just leaving them there. Right. But funny enough though, Herb recognized that too and said that to Adam. I don't remember what chapter it was, but like that example. So that they find the prisoners from old Burnham, a bunch of women and children locked away, kind of left, left to die basically. And Adam's like, no, we're bringing them back. And Herb didn't want to and then later on in our story a little bit before where we were in our reading right now herb was like no like thank you adam like you're doing this like you're helping because i wouldn't have made that decision and you were able to right and, and that kind of brings that full circle in in terms of that mentor mentee relationship it i find that it's it's brought them really almost to a level playing field by Herb even acknowledging Adam's um, Adam's leadership and his success so far in the 70-odd days that this has been going on. Is that, is that fair? Uh, yeah, you're right. Like, I was saying before that they aren't really, um, like, equal, but, like, uh, now that you say that, I feel like like they are a little bit more um, like equal, I guess, 
Yeah, I think Herb is still superior, right? I mean, I think age and Adam doesn't see himself as being superior and that's kind of what makes him a good potential leader. But to the point that kind of started this all out, maybe that's just another thing. Like Herb, there was one point in the in the reading where Herb was almost buttering Adam up like uh like, yeah, you've done so good and you've made all these different moves and like, thank you for helping me, you know, show sympathy and be empathetic. I wonder if he's just kind of buttering him up for, for something else. Like that may be true. Like, like, it, um, I could believe it because like Herb is slightly, well, not even slightly. He's actually a pretty manipulative person. If you think about it. Yeah. He can work with people's minds to get them to agree or disagree on certain things. Um, similar to what uh, Harleen said. But, um, like, he may be just, like, uh, trying to get uh, on Adam's, sorry, good side, like, more, you know, because, like, he notices the like the tense uh, relationship. But I feel like, like, even if that is true... Uh, what he is saying, like how Adam is like helping him a lot, is like also true. Okay. Because it just like makes sense. Okay. Uh, so I just got email from Eric Walters. He had to rush to get his grandson. So I think he's doing grandfather work. <laughs> um, but he did say uh, ten thirty. He can be home for ten thirty. Would that work? So I sent him that saying yes that would work so we might have to go into first break a bit but i'll give you the time on the back end of break uh just to ensure you guys are getting that and honor that so uh two ways that we can go about this does i can ask you guys does anyone have anything that they want to bring to this uh bring to this conversation from the portion of the reading or I have a couple of questions from different parts of the reading that I would love to ask you guys. So you tell me what you guys want. What, what direction do you want to go? Does anyone have anything pressing that they want to discuss or something that they thought was important to discuss or bring up in conversation from the chapter 17 to 23? No? Okay. So I have a couple of points. Um, and some of you might have to locate them in your book, but because I read it on the Kindle. So my locations are like interesting. <laughs> I, I don't have page numbers. I have location numbers. Um, okay. Location 2579, which is, let me just get a chapter for you guys. Chapter 18, so towards the start, there's a, this is the chapter where Lori and Adam go to visit Madison and Elise, and Lori gives, sneaks food to, to them. And I'll, I'll read you the passage, but it says, I saw Lori slyly pass something to Madison. I pretended not to see. 
but she saw me not see her. I knew what it was, food. Lori and Elise spoke and Madison clung to Lori's leg. They were both friendly enough to me, but I think they sensed my distance. Distance was protection. It was the difference between walking through some place and flying 500 feet above. That part of the story. So to me, I read this and I said, oh my, Adam has a defense mechanism. Lori loves to jump in and just get to know people and all this. Adam prefers not to see people's faces and not engage in conversation. And the analogy that I give is uh, at one point in the story, there was a, a quote that said, um, you know, indigenous people of the Arctic or none of it or Iqaluit or whatever it was, I don't remember the exact location, but they didn't like to give names to their sled dogs because that personalizes things that makes it harder to, to quote the story, makes it harder to eat something that you gave a name to. So I feel like this is Adam's defense mechanism, his own personal nat natural defense mechanism. And my question to you guys is, do you find that you have a defense mechanism in your own life for surviving different situations? Obviously not this sort of survival, but just a noticeable defense mechanism to help you throughout your life. Give me a second to think about it. Anyone with a defense mechanism? Wait, can you be more specific? So just going through your life, is there anything that you notice that you do without really, that you do strategically to make sure that you're helping yourself? Like you're maybe preventing something from happening. And the example that I use is Adam. Adam doesn't want to get to know Madison and Elise. He doesn't want to engage in conversation. He doesn't want to get to know them personally. And he doesn't want to do those things because he doesn't want to have to do something negative to someone that he knows. Like he thinks that maybe the tent people are going to have, like we're going to have to kick them out. We're, we're not going to be able to help them. So it's going to be easier to do that if he doesn't know who they are. That's his defense mechanism. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Can it be like really basic? Yeah, for sure. I'm just, my question to you guys is, it, do you guys have any defense mechanisms? All animals are built with defense mechanisms. Every animal. Uh, mine isn't to do with animals and it's actually really basic, but um, whenever I want to leave my laptop or like I start feeling like I need to procrastinate, um, 
I I just stay there and if I want water or something very desperately, I stay and I finish my work and then I get water because if I don't and I just get up and get water, I'll start procrastinating and then soon I'll just forget about it. So I stay put and then finish and then do what I want to do. So That's kind almost, of my defense. You, you put in your own like reward system. Like you try to like, you try to dangle a carrot in front of your own face kind of thing. Um, have, you ever, have you ever heard that analogy before? No. The dangling a carrot in front of someone means like you lure them. Like you put like a reward in front of them and then they're trying to chase after that carrot because they want it. Yeah, like, kind of. Do you like dangle your own carrot to try to motivate? Kind of. I don't really use it as motivation. I just use it as like discipline almost. Like yeah. I want to, I'll just stay there and then if I would just be thinking about it and that's like the only thing I'm trying to achieve right now to finish my work and then do it because then if I don't, yeah. Okay. I'll give you guys another example is um, like a defense mechanism for me. If I really don't want to talk to someone, like I know I have to like walk past someone or um, I do a lot small talk. Like if I know I don't want to have a small talk conversation with someone, especially when I'm like walking the dog in the neighborhood or something like that, headphones, I go hard on headphones and just blast that volume. I can't hear anything else. And it just like, I don't want to have a, that's my defense mechanism for like not engaging in small talk with people. So that's a real life example for me. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys. Does anyone have their own kind of real example of their own little defense mechanisms? When your parents tell you to um, like hug your aunts and uncles or something and then they start like kissing your face all over, I kind of dodge my head a little bit. So it's like, okay, yeah. She <laughs> yeah. No, I, I let them for like a lot and then I'm like okay that's enough you mean like, you don't just no. put your hand out and like say no <laughs> no um what I usually like my family loves food so I'll just be like oh there's food over there and then they'll like turn their head and they'll just run away so a distraction you go hard with the distraction yeah all right fair that's a great defense mechanism yep anyone else so I have one, but it's not really like a defense mechanism, but whenever I have like a large sum of work to do, I try to like split it up into like smaller pieces. So I guess this is like something like everybody does, but like I split it into smaller pieces and then I kind of like take a break after I do each of those smaller pieces. So I, it's more appealing for me to do instead of just sitting for one long session. That is probably the one strategic, uh, we'll call it efficiency tool that more people need to employ, especially in distance learning. That's something that I, that's advice that I have given on many a report card actually. Um, yeah. Again, not really a defense mechanism, more of a strategic plan to accomplish tasks, but anyone else, anyone else think they have a kind of a built-in defense mechanism? Oh, I think I have another one. Okay. Okay, so when I run in the morning, right, um, I don't usually get up. So sometimes she has to, like, ring my doorbell, and then I quickly get up, and that's what I've kind of been doing for the first two days. And then I start doing that, and then I start getting into the habit of waking up early. 
rushing myself, kind of. Okay, that's fair. Again, a strategy, not really. Defense means like you're on the, you know, you don't, something bad could, not something bad, but you, you there's like an avoidance or like, you know, in, in animal kingdom, in the animal kingdom, a defense mechanism is like avoiding a predator, right? So like a chameleon blends into, you know, blends into the environment that they're in, that's their built-in defense mechanism to avoid a predator. Or, you know, uh, an armadillo rolls up into a ball and you can only have its shell, or a turtle retracts into a shell, right? Those are all defense mechanisms, right? So it's kind of to avoid doing something bad or something bad happening. Um, okay, my last question is about what I think is the biggest theme of the story so far. So for us, it's back in chapter 21, almost towards the end. I'll read you the quote. The quote is, uh, I forget who's saying it. I think it's Adam. Maybe we are more like wild animals than insects. We do whatever we need to do to survive even if it means others won't. So this was an analogy between wild animals and insects because Herb was telling Adam that we're, we're such industrious little insects, right? No matter what happens, we, we struggle back and we figure out ways. But then this quote, we're, we're more like wild animals than insects. We do whatever we need to do to survive even if it means others will not. And the reason I think this is the biggest theme of the story is because it's this constant battle of, are you willing to do whatever it takes to survive? And I think Herb is there. I don't think Adam is there. I think Brett is there. I don't think Kate is there. So I think it's this constant theme that all of our characters are being challenged to are you willing to do whatever you need to do to survive i'm interested to hear your guys thoughts opinions on that topic on that theme mr campbell i just wanted to mention i've joined in at this point hey mr walters how are you I'm doing well. I'm just turning on my camera right now. Here we are. Sorry about that. I That's got called okay. over to my son. We have a newborn baby and a three-year-old, and somebody had to take care of the three-year-old all of a sudden, so he's come to join us here. Congratulations. Thank you. Another new one due in three weeks. Wow. So that's grandpa status times three? Six. 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 Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's funny. You talk about survival and what people will do. I know what people will do to protect their children and their grandchildren. It's like a mama bear protecting her uh, her babies. Yeah, you came in at a very opportune time. I, uh, it's it's absolutely wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Um, You're welcome. We are uh, we are midway through our our little classroom podcast here, but uh, we were bringing up. We are on chapter seventeen to twenty three of your second book, Fight for Power. Mm -hmm. so second book in your series, definitely not your second book, but, um, and I, I don't know how much of that question you heard, but 
I heard a little bit of the quote from Adam. I think um, we are in different ways. We will, what we will do to survive. And some people aren't prepared to do bad things to other people, even to help themselves survive. And some people like Brett, he doesn't, he, he'll do whatever he wants to do. And for him, science isn't about survival. It's just about that. He's really not a nice person. <laughs> the rush, right? The thrill of the adrenaline. Yeah, I think he, he'd kill somebody just because not because it's his survival, just because it's his amusement. He's a very bad person. Agreed. And, uh, we have, We've had some conversations about Brett as his character is evolving here. So, um, <laughs> is he evolving or devolving? Is the question. <laughs> no kidding. One of the students, um, prior to you coming in today, uh, I had sent out an assignment to everyone to, are there any questions that you have for, for Mr. Walters? And, uh, a bunch of them were very, um, spoiler alert type questions. So if you don't mind, we can pivot here now that you've joined and, and we want oh, to of course, of course. maximize our time with you but uh, we have a bunch of students that have come up with some questions uh for you so if if you're okay with that we i will Fantastic. throw it throw it Fantastic. to them and uh if before we go anywhere if there's anything you want to say introduction anything of that nature feel free well i just thought you might want to know that the rule of three is a trilogy but there is a fourth book called um fourth dimension because every trilogy needs a fourth and i just <laughs> find contracts for the fifth in the rule of three trilogy wow that's awesome congratulations yeah thank you now i don't know what different chapters mean um in i've got to be careful i even say this i don't want to spoil things so what's just happened up to this point has there anybody rejoined the colony or has anybody reappeared that wasn't there Okay, does anyone want to give Mr. Walters the update of kind of where we are at, like what, what happened chapter 23? What, what's the last kind of thing that, that's transpired? Because I have no idea. <laughs> it's all just a one huge story for you, right? Yeah, well, you read it recently. I wrote it years ago. I haven't read it since I wrote it, since the last time. And, and I don't know what happens in different books. I have a rough idea, but I need to be brought up online because I'm thinking, when did this happen? Was that book one? Yeah, I think that's the end of book one. What happens at the end of book two? Oh, I think I know, but I'm not sure. And I can't tell you because you're not there yet. Of course. So does anyone want to bring Mr. Walters up to date as to where we are in the, in the story? So near the end of chapter 23, I'm pretty sure there was a fire. And then now Adam came to investigate and he's watching the fire with Herb. And now he, okay. then he not herb brett yeah and he overheard brett like saying how amazing the fire is and then he seemed kind of sadistic there yeah that's one of the characteristics i have a degree in social work as well as education one of the things they talk about is people like him like fires um they talk about fires and cruelty to small animals the sort of, sort of things that go along with that personality type yeah so this was the a fire that was in the community on we mm -hmm. on wheelwright i think it was yeah i used to live on wheelwright <laughs> and that might be some of the the questions that we get to so that's kind of where we're at okay. in storyline if that okay i also used to live on powderhorn i think his house now is on powderhorn i lived on wheelwright and we moved to powderhorn for 25 years wow okay so that might be a, a lead-in question <laughs> for for some but um okay hit me with questions all right, who wants to uh, take the lead here? 
All right, Manal, you are up. Hi. So I was wondering, um, in the second book, uh, there's more mention of Adam's father now than there was in the first book. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, should we expect something with that? Like, <laughs> is like, like, I don't want you to spoil anything, but like. Then I can't answer you. Then I can't answer you if you want me to spoil it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't mind if you spoil it for me, but like, I don't want to ruin it for everyone else. Um, I, I will tell you, Adam's father is the main character in book five. And Adam's okay. not in book five at all. Ooh. Oh. Wow. I think that's a fantastic answer. Uh, wow. Okay, then I'll look forward to that. that. That doesn't mean anything's happened to Adam. Adam's just not in the book. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that satisfying you, Mono? Yeah, I think so. Okay, awesome. Uh, so I just posted an order of yeah. kind of who's going who's gonna to ask questions uh, yeah. in the but, chat there. But that whole question shows somebody who's paying attention to things called the term is called foreshadowing. When something is going to happen, you 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 drop little crumbs along the way so people can see what's going to happen. And you don't want to give them too much, but you want to give them enough to think something's going to happen here. Something's going to happen. I'm a terrible person to watch TV with because <laughs> I always figure out what's going to happen. And I'll say to my wife, do you want me to tell you or don't? And and I'll say, okay, the next line is, and and I'll get up as they say that line, and she's saying, where are you gonna, where, why are you going? I said, I don't want to see him killed in a car crash. She said, what? I said, yeah, he's gonna be killed in a car crash. I, I'll be back in a few minutes. I don't want to watch that. And I'll come back and say, so he was killed in a car crash, right? Said, yes, he was killed in a car crash. Okay, fine. I'll, okay, uh, before Miskeen, I got to ask a, a, another question. I just finished watching a um, miniseries called Mayor, Mayor of Easttown. I don't I know if you've heard it's, it's awesome. It's very good. So, but it is literally like you talk about crumbs along the way, you know, mm -hmm. thriller, crime, murder, mystery, all that. Just what you described in immersing yourself in writing these things, does it do you find that it really forces you to appreciate the better quality of that genre? Or do you find yourself like, no, I'm out because it's just way too predictable all the time. I need things not to be predictable. If you know the punchline to a joke, it's not funny. Yeah. And so I, I can predict a lot of things. I love shows I can't predict. So for example, I love Dexter because I, Kept doing things I couldn't see coming. There's another season coming of Dexter. I was just going to say, they're remaking. Yep. Or they're I, making another one. I hated Downton Abbey, which people love, because I could predict every line, every plot change, everything that's going to happen. It's like, come on. This is so obvious. Why are we watching this? Fair. And it was beautifully acted, but it was like dumb because <laughs> it was just it was too predictable. I love the honesty. That's fantastic. Yeah. I've just finished watching a series called Dark Matters, which I liked, but it had some predictability to it. You can't have everything. When I'm reading a story, I want them to fool me. It's like a magic trick. You, you, if you know what the trick is, it's not magic anymore. So I've got to um, give you a little bit of a hint that you know something's going to happen, but not so much that you see it, me pull it out of the pocket and hand it to you. So... Fair. 
so I'm giving hints in that area. It sounds like about Adam's father. I wonder what's going to happen with Adam's father. <laughs> well, and Adam's at the point right now where he saw a commercial airline crashed in one of his flights. So that's that is haunting him in his dreams, let's say. so. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's still wondering, was his father in the air at that point? Was he on the ground? Flights leave a little early sometimes. They leave a little late. And it was a matter mm -hmm. of minutes whether he was going to be in the air or not. Interesting. All right, so we'll pop over to Mesquine now. She was having some internet issues, but I think she is all good to go. So, Mesquine, you want to ask a question? Um, yeah. Hello, Mr. Walters. Hello. Um, my first question is, why did you decide to make your main character a male? Well, sometimes I make them female. Sometimes I make male. Those seem to be my, my basic binary choices. Um, I tend to write more male characters than females, although I've probably written 20 novels with a female lead character. Um, it's easier for me to write male because I can identify more with the male character. When I'm writing female, I tend to make them more um, introspective, more thoughtful. Because let's be honest, um, the guys can listen to this too, but, but girls, let's be honest. The, the guys, we're, we're not that bright sometimes about things. We're, we're much more direct, it seems. And that, that's stereotypical, I know, but that seems to be a, a, a thing. So when I write my male characters, they're more this way. When I write female characters, they're they're bigger because they think things through a lot more. So I, I decided to write him, uh, but in fourth dimension, my lead character is not male. My lead character is female. So in the fourth book, female. In the fifth book, I haven't decided who's going to be the protagonist. It could be a, it's going to be a, a young person, younger than in those stories. I think Protagonists only be ten or eleven. I haven't decided if it's going to be a male or female yet. Are there characters that you might be choosing between, like twins, for instance? No, I don't think I don't have twins in this one. I'd like okay. it to go from one protagonist, and the twins have such a strange um, bond that it would, it would really dominate the story in some ways. Okay. I just heard a story about two identical twins who don't talk to each other. They're adults and they don't talk to each other. I'm thinking. How could you not talk to your identical person? But they got into fights when they were young and just stopped talking as adults. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, Miss Keen, you had said your first question. Do you have a second one? Um, yeah, I have another question now. So, you know how mm -hmm. Brett's amazed by fires and killing yep. people. In yep. the first book, we know that when he was younger, his father kind of abused him. So is it because of trauma he had in his childhood that he's like this now that's probably a lot to do with it i i worked in the emergency department for 18 years um with credit valley and then before that i worked um as a social worker with children's aid society and i used to say i've never seen an abuser who wasn't abused and that's not to excuse it some people who have been abused when they were younger rise above it and become people who would never harm anyone but i've never seen anyone who abused somebody who wasn't abused and Brett went through some trauma. There's no question what his father did to him. But there's also some theory about um, his characteristics. He, he would be, depending on how you look at, some people don't even use the term sociopath and psychopath anymore. They just use one term, psychopath. Some people think that's hardwired in who you are. And he may have been that person if he was raised in the best family possible. But I suspect an abusive background has made him insensitive and, and unable to identify and empathize with people. When, when you see somebody get hit, you feel for them. People like him don't.
They don't have that internal clock that says, oh, that's terrible, that poor person. They, they don't have that. And partly it could be from his background. There's no question. But I think there may be something about him that's just not right in his brain. His brain is wired differently. If you want to take a computer analogy, you have hardware on your computer and you have software. People are sort of the same. We have hardware, what we're born with. Um, I, I didn't work hard to get blue eyes. That was part of my biological hardware. But the software that you put into the hardware changes things. And I think the software is how he was treated. The hardware is how he's biologically his DNA. And he's a combination of those two, like we all are. The theory they talk about is they talk nature, nurture. What part is naturally you and what part is nurtured into you by your parenting? So he was a bad person any way, I think, but he became a worse person. And you're just seeing the first parts of how bad he's going to be. <laughs> Some he, foreshadowing. <laughs> he gets worse. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Miskeen. That was wonderful. Great questions. Th those uh, were very thoughtful questions, but that's what I've had so far. Let's move on to Jazzpreet. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, how did you come across the character of Herb? Like, was he like an imagination or was he inspired by someone? A little bit of combination of things. Now, do you know where Herb Campbell Public School is? I it's do. not far from you. No. I didn't deliberately do that, but I realized uh, I've been to Herb Campbell a few times. I thought, that's kind of a cool name. Um, my kids joke that there's a little bit of um, a lot of Herb and me. I, I tend to watch everything all the time. I watch over everybody. Um, they... <laughs> They we joke were just talking before you came in about leaders and observations and leading as a result of observations. I'm incapable of not watching the things around me. And if you talk hardware and software, um, my mother died when I was four years of age. And my father had some psychiatric issues. So he didn't, he wasn't a very good parent. So I had to learn from a very young age to just take care of things, watch things, make sure things were going on. And actually, if you read uh, the book of mine that just won the Governor General's Award um, called The King of Jam Sandwiches, the opening scene is this boy, 12 years of age, being dragged out of bed in the middle of the night by his father saying, I'm going to die. You're going to be on your own. And my father used to do that to me. So I was born with this, my software that was given to me is I watch everything all the time, like Herb does. So I'm watching what's going on around me, and, and I've got that Herb-like quality. The kids joke that um, that the, when they were younger, they say, we're pretty sure you're a teacher and a writer, but it wouldn't surprise us if you were with CSIS. Because <laughs> I do tend to, to do that. It's funny. I started a story a while ago that I haven't finished because I got sidetracked by other things about a children's writer. And he travels the world and he does presentations and he does research. And one of the characters he writes in this series is an international assassin. It turns out the children's writer is actually an international assassin who uses a cover of being a children's writer to go around the world and kill people. <laughs> and it's like, I know way too much about killing people. Like I just, I've done so much research and I know about how to avoid facial recognition software. You know, you can defeat facial recognition software if you distort your mouth in certain ways. If you have a different expression, if you puff out your cheeks, you can actually beat it. You can put small things on your nose, reflective sunglasses, the type right, will defeat it. I know about ammunition. I, it just amazed me how much I know about genetic material and DNA and police um, procedures. But I've done so much research, so maybe I would make a really good international killer. 
I think I'm not, I'm not a sociopath though. I, I, don't <laughs> like, I don't like killing anything. I don't like killing caterpillars. Although the gypsy moths do need to be eradicated. Well, I was up at the cottage this weekend. The, the trees are almost bare. It's unreal. Um, yeah. Uh, it's and you, you can hear them eating. You actually walk outside and you hear millions of them eating your trees. Yeah, my TikTok feed is full of just all the bad gypsy moth caterpillar. It's it's. it's I really think that some municipalities need to step in and do a little bit more personally. But that's a whole different conversation yep. and yep. not one maybe for now. But Jaspreet, is that sufficient? You like that answer? Yeah. Okay, so this could not be a better segue to the person you are about to talk to. The fact that you brought up CSIS is like, <laughs> this is her dream in life, I think, right now at this stage. So, Harleen, I will let you just do your thing. Uh, so, I actually had the same question, but very similar. I was going to say, what inspired you to make Herb's character and his traits? For example, he was a spy in the military. Where did you get the inspiration? I had a very similar um, question, and I love how, like, you brought up thesis and the spy work and assassins. I, I just love that so much, and the fact we're getting to learn about that in school really, like, puts out the future for me, I guess. Sometimes I wonder about this whole us versus them. Is it our sociopaths versus their sociopaths? Because Herb used to go and kill people all the time too. That was his job to go and kill people. And he couldn't think much about it, but now he's developing a conscience. It's almost like as the world is changing Adam from this kind person to somebody who has to become harder to survive, Adam is changing Herb. The symbol what Herb sees in Adam, this, this goodness, this caring for people, this changing Herb. And I think Herb is trying to make amends for what he's done in the past. Yeah. That's what I think he's trying to do. Um, certain um, things in the military, okay, basic rule in all religions, thou shall not kill. It doesn't matter whether you're talking the Quran, uh, the Torah, the Bible, Indian tracts, um, Hindu, Buddhism, thou shall not kill. But then we train soldiers to kill people. So the question is, when is that an acceptable thing to do? Snipers are trained to kill people. That's their job, to look down a scope and shoot somebody. My God, what a terrifying thought. It is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what Harleen wants to be. So welcome to the sociopath of the class, Miss Harleen. Or, or what she For may the be. better good. Well, well, I think that the whole idea is that, that we train people to try and protect us and we assume they're going to believe in our values of democracy and free will and things. But then you get into philosophic questions. It, could you kill somebody who would do harm? Um, that terrible tragedy in London, that that 20-year-old killing that family. Uh, if, if I have a chance to intercede and kill him, would you have any question that I could I could do that if I had to? If I saw him on the verge of killing an innocent family, I could kill him, even though I believe thou shalt not kill. I don't want to harm anybody. And that's where Adam's at at this point, is Adam is a decent person. He, he, he feels empathy. He cares for people. He wants to do the right thing. But sometimes the right thing isn't the right, which you've been told is the right thing. He's stepping over some boundaries. Yeah, I we, we had just been discussing this as well, is that this is the what I had identified as being the largest theme of this, not of book two in particular so far is the 
can you do what it takes to survive? Are you the animal, the wild animal, or are you the insect, right? The, yeah. Are you willing to do what it takes in order for your survival and those you love? Or mm -hmm. are you the empathetic lorry, let's say, that needs has that need or desire to help others before themselves necessarily? Yeah. My wife and I've had this conversation. My wife is a very gentle, kind person. And we, I also like The Walking Dead, the first seven or eight seasons. It's oh, really gotten bizarre since then. But she'd say, I, I just give up. I, I can't do this. I just give up. And that's me like, no, I don't give up. I'm going to do what I have to to protect my family. It's funny. When I was a teacher, I felt that way about my class. Um, I'm a very calm person. But I remember some older grade eights picking on my grade fives. It's like I was just like a mother bear. It's like, you don't do that. You you don't you 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 don't ever pick anyone smaller, but picking on my kids. When you're in my class, you're my babies. My job is to protect you and make sure you learned and grew, but nobody picks on my babies. Think about that for a second, guys. You're my babies. <laughs> Hopefully we got some laughs out of that. I saw I saw three people laugh, so that's good. <laughs> a father of 26. <laughs> It, it's funny. A lot of this whole thing with the rule of three comes from me spending time in uh, in Kenya. Um, I co-founded and I run an orphanage there, co-run an orphanage. And it's, um, you see how badly people treat um, treat kids in desperate situations. And there, things are desperate. There's three million orphans, three million orphans with nobody to care for them. So the kids in my program, there's 300 of them. They are my babies. No one picks on my orphans. No one takes advantage of them. And sometimes I'm there as a as a as a mother bear, and they use me as a threat sometimes. Uh, I'll go to schools and I'll just say to the the principal and the and the teachers because they'll sometimes treat orphans badly. It's not like here where teachers really work hard to be good. Sometimes they'll treat the orphans badly, and I'll just go and say, "This is my baby. This is my child." When when you're treating this child, when you're speaking to this child, you're speaking to me, and you don't want me to come back and be angry with you, do you? <laughs> And then I get them on side to help help provide for these kids. But it, it's that whole thing. What would you do to survive? What would you do to take care of your babies? It's awesome. I'd sacrifice my life for my kids in a second. Couldn't agree more. But I guess it means I'd sacrifice somebody else's life for my kids in a second. It's reflective thought there, huh? Yeah. Th this comes down to the whole thing where people will say, oh, you're just kids. We shouldn't be talking serious stuff with you. You know, you, we should be talking unicorns and rainbows because you can't handle anything except unicorns and rainbows. But but the reality is, that, and in the history of humanity, you are the smartest, most connected, most brilliant generation that's ever existed. You're smarter at your age than your parents were, your teachers were than I was. These are things that go around, especially when a pandemic hits and you start seeing all these extra things. This computer you're sitting in front of can connect you to the world in a way that's a fantasy 40 years ago. This, this is beyond belief. So we've got to treat you as smart, connected, thinking beings. You're, you're older at your age than we were at your age. Agreed. And smarter, a lot smarter. So, well, some of the boys maybe not, but the girls are definitely smarter than we were at our age, at your age. Uh. No comment. <laughs> um, Harleen, you're good?
Yes. Okay. Moving on to Miss Paribega. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, when did you first realize that you wanted to become a writer? When I was in grade five, my grade five teacher told me she thought I could be a writer, which I thought was ridiculous since I was obviously going to be in the NBA. Um, my grade five teacher is 96. I spoke to her last week on the phone. Uh, she's a character in the book um, Fourth Dimension, and the book is dedicated to her. When I launched the book, I invited her to the book launch. She was turning 93 three days later. I didn't hold a book launch. I was throwing her a surprise 93rd birthday party. Um, I invited members of her family, her church, her community. We had cupcakes, candles. We sang happy birthday. That's when I thought about writing, but I never thought, you know, who, who becomes a writer? And then it was my class at Vista Heights in Mississauga that um, I started writing my first book for, Stand Your Ground. And that book is set in Vista Heights. The water tower where the kids used to have fistfights is in the story. They play soccer because I used to play soccer almost every day in the good weather with my class at the end of the day. And um, six of the characters in that book are characters in my story. So that's, I guess I started thinking about being a writer when I was 36 as a teacher. Before that, I was like, no, nah, who's a writer? Stephen they're, King. <laughs> yeah, they're <laughs> mythical creatures. Fair. Pari, yeah. Yeah. I also have like one more question to ask. Um, from all the books that you have written so far, which one is your favorite? Um, the one I'm working on. It's always the one I'm working on. So this is the one I'm working on right now. It's called Boldly Go. It's the second in a space trilogy. Um, the first one, these kids go to a space camp. They're in grade eight. It's not a space camp. It's a space audition. They're choosing three grade eight students to send to the space station. The first book ends, they get to the space station. This one starts as they're blasting off, and they get selected for the Mars mission. And they do all their training, and they're going to go partway to Mars, five adult astronauts, three of the teens, and then something happens on the spaceship, killing the five adults, leaving the three teens to continue on the Mars mission by themselves. Mm -hmm. That's where this book will end, and I'm about five chapters away from the end. So that's my favorite. By the way, I don't write in this book. I write on my computer. This is my organizational tool. So... Um, before I write, I start breaking things down. So those are the chapters that I thought were going to be in it, 32 chapters. Um, but I didn't do that one, and those two went up there, and that became four and five over there, and I added four chapters at the end. And these are my characters, talking about who they are and what they're like and their characteristics and their personalities, and those revolving chapter characters. So that's how I write. This is my favorite because I'm working on it. Do you, I'm going to interject here for a second, if that's cool, Pari. Yeah, it's okay. Do you find your writing process, do you more start with characters and who is in the story or more of a setting plot or do you focus on conflict? What, what kind of gets, gets the juices going, as they might say? I'm a plot-driven writer. Okay. I believe plot, you need to move the story forward. Some people spend a lot of time developing character, and you have to develop enough character. A book I, I've just been doing a final draft on is with my friend Wally Shaw. Wally is a spoken word poet. And um, he's uh, 27, so less than half my age, and he's also Muslim background. He was born in Pakistan. And so we, we come at it differently, but he wanted a big punch at the start of the book, where I had the punch at chapter 17, and I said to him, I don't think the punch works at first because we need to develop the characters. 
but I rewrote it. And after he looked at it, he said, yeah, we got to develop the characters, don't we? When something emotionally happens, you have to be connected enough to the characters that you feel it in your heart. So we had to do more character development before we did the punch. But you also have to have something happening. So I've got something happening now in chapter one. It's just not that giant punch in the gut, which now takes place in chapter 17. That building that rising action. Yeah. You got to yep. get there with the characters first. Yep. And ideally, I love chapters where at the end of the chapter, you think, oh my God, I've got to read the next chapter. What happens next? I find that theme very, very often in a lot of your novels, for sure. I think uh, I, I my first experience with you came with um, We All Fall Down. Yeah. And using that as a, a jumping off point in September to read novels with the class. And yeah. The, the definite theme in your writing of cliffhanger endings at chapters. Mm -hmm. I, my students at different stages, like, can, can we read the next chapter? <laughs> like we'd end up reading five chapters in a day. It's, it's binge reading TV as they call it now. Right. As a teacher, you, you, you know what books that works with. I started writing because of a book called plan B is total panic by Martin Godfrey. I was, um, reading it to my class and I was about a chapter away from being finished chapter and a half and lunch happened and I was leaving for the afternoon. I had to go to a funeral and I said, okay, tomorrow I'll finish it. And they said, no. I said, well, yes. They said, we're not going to lunch until you finish this book. We refuse to leave. <laughs> so they just, it was an open rebellion. So I had to sit there and read the, the last chapter and a half to them before they would agree to go to lunch. And I'm at this funeral and I didn't know the dead person very well. It was my wife's friend's mother, but I had to be there for my wife. So I had a lot of time and I thought of the opening scenes of uh, Stand Your Ground while I was there. And the funeral that I went to is the funeral scene for the mother in that book. Hmm. So I started writing it in my head right then. I thought, this has such power. I want to be able to do this as well. Yeah, it's definitely a superpower for sure. All right, great questions, Pari. Uh, on to Gabby. Now, I'm, I'm just uh, looking at things here because my 11 o'clock, I think we're going to move it away from 11 o'clock, so that gives me a little more time, which is good. Okay. We are supposed to have a break at 10.50, but I think exactly of what you just described is probably where we're at with our group. So we okay. will move our to our schedule accordingly when when. Will, will you maximize our time with you and, and make sure that you let okay. us know when you got to move? Okay. So I got I freed up things. I'm actually, I was going to be with uh, D.O. Gibson, who's a rapper. But we're going to meet at 3 o'clock now. He's, he's a good guy. Awesome. Uh, Gabby, take it away. Would you rather be part of the committee making all the hard decisions or be a citizen within the walls that stays completely ignorant to what's happening? I want to know what's going on. Always. I would want to be one of the people making the decisions. There's a saying, ignorance is bliss, that you can be happy, not know what's going on around you, but I prefer to know what's going on around me all the time, which is assuming I know what's going on around me, and probably we don't know a lot of what's going on around us. <laughs> we my, all my, have a level of ignorance, yeah, whether we my, choose to accept my, it. My dog doesn't know what's going on. I assume I know what's going on, but on some levels, I don't know what's going on. That's why I, it, your student who wants to be in CSIS, she'd know more what's going on, really. She's very observant, yes. <laughs> uh, Gabby, do you have a question about the book or just the would you rather? 
Um, how did you come up with like the plot overall? Like what inspired you to create theory and everything? I, I've never written dystopian before, and I think partly it was because um, I was in. I spent a lot of time in Kenya, and I was there at a time when there was some um, extreme uh, violence. There were six thousand people murdered, and six hundred thousand people had to run for their lives. And I saw what happens in a society when everything breaks down. And I thought, sometimes we think here that we're quote unquote civilized. We're all the same. We're human beings. If things break down, what would happen to us was my question. And what I actually believe is th this isn't a science fiction book. This is one piece of science fiction, the loss of all computers. Everything from there follows exactly how I think the world would, would deteriorate very quickly. And you look at um, what happened in uh, New York when the electricity went out, uh, the Holy Seaboard, things started like happening quickly. And Hurricane uh, Katrina, it took 12 hours before there were, people were setting buildings on fire. There really is, uh, I want to look at the human condition. How do we react? What part of us is kind? What part of us is cruel? What will we do to survive? What are we not prepared to do? And so I was looking at that whole genre. A lot of time dystopian stories take place on Mars or 400 years from now or with zombie apocalypses. This is just what happens if all the computers go down today? What would the world be like in six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, five days? And I think I've captured it. I think so as well. I, uh, to piggyback off Gabby, I think one of the nice things that, I shouldn't say nice things. One of the interesting things that I find in this specific series, having read all of them, one, two, three, and, and the fourth dimension there, um, is the historical context. Like there, there's lots of references to how things have gone backwards in time. And book one, it was very much like, pioneer times and rebuilding a society from you know that doesn't have electricity and black creek pioneer mm -hmm. village comes to mind right but mm -hmm. um in book two uh, you really get this feudal system right like mm -hmm. castles being built which i think was referenced recently in our a bunch of different castles and then the little tent cities are you know all these little villagers that camp outside the walls of the tent or outside the walls of the castle hoping for protection so i love the historical kind of elements of society and how we've mm -hmm. kind of we go backwards to go forward i guess if you will but the mm -hmm. lessons that are learned in history mm -hmm. did you pick up the names of some of the people in the tent city that is hilarious because that was our last podcast and i told no one I told everyone that I wanted to ask you this question, but you have to be a Big Bang. I love Big Bang Theory. It's a great show. So is that where the characters' names All came the from? characters came from Big Bang, yeah. Ah, woo! <laughs> uh, it was amazing to me because I asked that question to almost um, every single little group that we had for our book talks, and I, I it was my hypothesis that that's – had to have been where it came from. Sometimes you put little in-jokes. Uh, my friend Richard Scrimger put, um, there's one of his books, I think, The Nose from Jupiter, and they talk about this family up the way where the front lawn is covered with toys and the um, the father cares for the kids, always seems to be running around screaming. That's actually Richard and his kids and his front lawn. <laughs> we, we put little um, inside jokes or little pieces of us in them. 
And I like the Big Bang Theory, and you got to come up with names sometimes. So I thought, why not? <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, often when I was teaching those kids in my class, so I think the most I've had is in my basketball book, um, one of the basketball books. I have 13 members of my class who are characters in that book. Uh, that's cool. I'm sure they must love that. That's a little yep. something that they can hang their hat on for yeah. sure. And, and I think also dystopian novel, um, End of Days, probably 10 of my class, uh, my students in my class are named in that book. Awesome. Um, Gabby, is that you got anything else? No, that's all. Awesome. Okay, we are going to move to Monal. Monal, take it away. Okay, so uh, I talked before too, but like um, this question more about like the book concept in general. Mm -hmm. So, like in book one, it was more of a hero's journey concept. Uh, it was like the development of um, Adam and like. I was growing as a character. Yep. But like, what type of concept were you going for in the second book? These are the sort of technical questions that I never quite understand. Um, <laughs> when my daughter was taking my last year, I was taking a writer's craft course. She'd ask me things about alliteration and synonyms and homilies, and I'm thinking like, I don't know what those mean. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just writing a story to move forward. Um, I had to plot out that that whole book. And when you're plotting out a book and it's 30 chapters, that's one thing. But when you're plotting out 90 chapters, you've got to see that the evolution of the characters, or in some cases, the dev devol devolvement of the characters, how they change. So I, I don't have a I don't have an uh, an overall theme in mind. I'm just trying to tell a, a story. And what evolves and what you see there is different from person to person. So I, I had nothing specific. It's just Adam's story. I want to tell the story of this of this uh, this community, the what I think would happen, and the changes along the way to the characters. All right. So, like is each book instead of like this whole series, because you say that like Adam doesn't come up later. Is well, I'm I'm saying in book five he's not going to be a character because there's going to be a parallel story going on. See, book four is also a parallel story. Here's the three books: one, two, and three. Book four doesn't take place at the bottom. Book four takes place here. It parallels these stories. And book five is going to take place as a parallel story. So okay. while this is going on here, this is also going on here. Because <clears throat> when, when the world is deteriorating like that, it isn't just Adam's neighbor that's experiencing that. Everyone in the world is experiencing. So there's six billion stories going on. I chose to tell Adam's story and the people peripheral to him. But in book four, I've taken a new character whose name escapes me at this point. Um, and she experiences the same situation, the world events, in a different way. Although Adam and her make a guest visit into the fourth book. The fifth book is going to be completely separate. As this character starts entering into the th three books, the story has a gap. So it, it's, a, it's a very different concept. Just I to like bring everyone up to speed, yep. too. The fourth book, the fourth dimension, is set uh, where your grade five teacher resides. Yes? Is that accurate? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So the fourth dimension is set in uh, Toronto Island. Mm -hmm. And the whole story of where it's set had to be blurred. Um, technically, I set this story in Mississauga and Toronto. But my U.S. publisher said, can you blur it so people in the States think it's the United States? I said, okay, I can do that. But I, I left in names like 
Mississauga Road, Eglinton Avenue West, Milton, Ontario, um, Highway 403, your Ontario. They maybe changed one uh, term, uh, Burnham Thorpe. They said it was too English, so I changed it to Burnham. And my character used to drink tea. They told me that was too Canadian. They had He had to start drinking coffee. So I changed tea to coffee. Oh, those American. Well, we got to follow the money, right? Yeah, that's basically the bottom line. As long as you have to follow the money. And we don't care if a story set in the United States, but those Americans don't like stories set us elsewhere. They, <laughs> they really think they're the center of the universe. And I guess in some ways they are. Yeah, that, that hatchet really didn't do well with Northern Ontario. <laughs> no, no. Uh, fantastic. Um, I would, I would love to piggyback off Manal there before we get to Aditya, but my question is the hero's journey as a teacher, I, again, I'm not a writer. I'm going to teach language and different elements of story and all that jazz. Um, did you find yourself following Joseph Campbell's kind of heroic pattern and saying like, okay, I need this step, then this step, then this step as you develop that plot line of Adam? I have no idea about that stuff. Really? Yeah, no idea whatsoever. So that's fascinating that it li it literally follows the heroic pattern of pretty much any any story. As I'm, I mean, you probably know or have heard of the heroic journey or pattern at some point. I've, I've heard of it. I've just never looked at it. Yeah. Um, th the best theories like that follow what life is about. Yeah. And what I've done is plotted out what I think life would be like for Adam. The steps he'd take, the, the forward movements, the backwards thought. The Adam is an incredibly introspective character. Adam thinks things through on way too many levels too many times. <laughs> the, the difficulty in thinking things through on too many levels is it can get you killed. If you have somebody with a gun up here and you have a gun and you think, hmm, what's the motivation here? What possibly going on? Is this morally the correct thing to do? What should I be doing? I wonder how his parents will feel about this. You're dead. Hesitation so, will kill you. Yeah. yeah, so Adam works with a the his biggest advantage is sometimes his disadvantage. And I think at first people like Brett see it as just a disadvantage. You can't pull the trigger. You can't do that. You have to think about things. You have to, you got morality. It gets in the way. And Adam's belief is that morality is his best weapon. That basic goodness that's in him is what will allow him to survive ultimately and help his community survive because he cares about people. No one can survive independently in these situations. Nobody can. It's how your community evolves. And you're, you're caring for people. The question becomes, do we believe people are basically good or basically bad? I like to think they're basically good. I think most people are basically good. Those sociopaths, those Bretts of the world, they're the exception. Most people are decent people. Sounds like a good Luke Bryan song to me. <laughs> well, think about what happened in, in London, Ontario, the tragedy of that. And this this 20-year-old taking the lives of this family. It, it, it's almost beyond belief. But that's not what we do as a people. Think about the hundreds of thousands of people across the country who went to mosques and put out flowers, who, who um, walked in, in different places to say this is wrong. And what mm -hmm. we assume is that the vast majority of us are good, decent people. And Adam's able to assemble those good people to take care of themselves, but to try and do it in a way that's morally correct, even when there's things they have to do. So they have their philosophy. They're not taking from other people. Brett doesn't care. 
They're not trying to harm other people. They're just trying to take care of themselves. And if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. We're not out there to harm you. We're here to protect us. I heard that little bit about defensive strategies. A turtle doesn't draw its head into, to try and kill another animal. It does that to protect itself. Its shell isn't there to be used as a rock against other animals. It's to protect itself. And that's what the what they're doing in, in Eden Mills. They're protecting themselves. They're not trying to harm other people. They're trying to protect themselves. They will do what they have to do, but they're morally good people, I believe. I just posted a link to a song. Sorry for the, the little clip intro there. But um, again, you say it, the Luke Bryan songs, most people are good. And it's that entire premise mm -hmm. um, which comes into play. Okay, Aditya. So my first, hi, first of all. So, and my question would be to, what period of life do you most, do you find you write about most often? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a young adult ch uh, ch child author. Um, my characters tend to be um, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age. Adam's a little bit older, Adam's 16 and change. My characters tend to be in that point because that is probably the most dynamic time of life. You are not children, but you are not adults. You're somewhere in the middle and that evolution, that creation is so fascinating to me. Right now you have unlimited potential of who you're gonna be. Say in the background, I'm hearing my grandson laugh. <laughs> not, not at me. He's who are you at that age? Confused. Um, I was in a neighborhood where people um, didn't do very well um, and I knew I wanted to do more. I wanted to become something. And uh, it was a confusing time. People talk sometimes, adults will go back and say, oh, if I could be 14 again, that'd be amazing. It's like, no, I don't want to be 14 again. That was pretty darn confusing. <laughs> pretty darn confusing. Um, did you use anything particular as an outlet? We talk, you know, pandemic and stress and all of these mm -hmm. things that a lot of people take for granted, which... I mean, for our group and, and these kids who might not know it right now, but, you know, being an adult has wonderful hindsight. But, like, I think the the adaptability and experiences that are happening to these kids right now is is going to be such a strength at some point in time, but just waiting for that. So I guess my question is when, you know, in these prime confusing years – how did you deal with stuff? I dealt with stuff by just saying I was going to work harder than everybody. That I, uh, and this goes back to this book, The uh, King of Jam Sandwiches. My character believes if he gets up earlier than everyone, works harder than everyone, works longer than everyone, he'll get somewhere. And that's always been my life philosophy. You can become something. You can become something special, but you got to work at it. Um, there's, there's a bunch of sayings that come to mind. Adapt or die. You make the changes you need to because you make those changes. Um, that which we survive makes us strong. Um, you you want to put um, um, steel is forged in fire. You want to see what people are like, put them under stress. Character isn't def defined, it's revealed. And I think that who you are is going to be very different than you would have been if the pandemic hadn't happened. You're surviving unprecedented times in an unprecedented way and somehow you're getting through this. It's, it's miraculous how well people are getting through this. For sure. I remember, uh, well, I just recently saw one of your posts on Twitter. It's, um, you know, the 
coming out the other side, it really felt like the, the vibe of, of your words, but you know, you're seeing kids in parks again and, you know, people outside and, and doing yeah. these things. So it's, as we sit here, you know, in June of 2021, it, it, there's a definite feeling of light at the end of the tunnel, I guess, if you will. And this time it isn't a train getting ready to hit us. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting through this. And the, the key to getting through this is um, wear masks, keep social distance, um, wash your hands treat each other well don't travel don't go beyond your bubbles and get vaccinated and there's real controversy i can't understand why there's controversy about vaccinations it's scientific fact so i got my second dose last week i got my second vaccination and i'm an az guy because i'm an older male and az wasn't a problem for older males my family is all um, working on their second doses now second vaccinations this is how we're going to get through this I think school in September is going to be much closer to how it was a year before that. It's not going to be exactly the same, but by next June, a year from now, we're going to look back on this and think, did we really do that? <laughs> I think that's very well said. We're going to be pull, pulling you all, you're, you'll be going into a jacket and pulling out a mask and think, oh, wow, I used to wear this all the time. It's going to surprise us how well we're going to adapt. Because okay. we do what we have to do to survive, which is what the rule of three is about. Yeah, for sure. That, that's why I wrote the pandemic book, I think. I kept having kids who were rule of three fans when the pandemic hit saying, like hundreds of them saying, are you going to write about the pandemic? This is like rule of three. Are you going to write about it? And I kept saying, no, no, I don't think so. And I realized, yeah, maybe I needed to. Yeah. Therapy for some. Mm -hmm. uh, Aditya, do you have any more questions? Yes, I have one more. So... In this book, Fight for Power, what do you think was your like hardest scene to write? I don't know all the scenes, so I can't tell you. I really can't. I'm not sure what scenes are in that book. What what, did, what happens at the end of book one? Tell me the last scene in book one, and that'll help me. Uh, they blow up the bridge. The bridge, okay. Stop the compound. Oh, so you don't know what's happening at the end of book two. I can't tell you. Um, <laughs> that was one of the hardest scenes to write. Even though I knew it was happening. Bear. Uh, yeah. yeah. Spoiler, spoiler alert for sure, but that, that hopefully engages us to, to keep reading. <laughs> where, where, where's Brett at this point? Is he part of the community still? <laughs> He's on night patrol. Okay. Uh, Brett on night patrol out there amongst... That's scary. Harleen's smirk from ear to ear just uh, was very illuminating to your words right now of, oh, wait, she just realized in her brain, I could literally watch her brain work and say, wait, he's not, he's going to leave the community? <laughs> oh, there's some, there's some very bad stuff happening. There's some very bad stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. So I know the scene that comes to mind and I, I can't tell you, but, but it's a defining scene for Adam with that realization what you have to do to survive which is a wonderful segue into the will to survive of a great title for uh, book three mm -hmm. um okay so those are our students that had questions submitted so just curious about your timeline right now i got a few more minutes by the okay. way the uh, fifth book is going to be called title flight plan Ooh. okay i could send some predictions, I think, of, of what that might yeah. be. And my schedule to write that is I'm working on uh, Boldly Go. I've got this draft finished and submitted by July 31st. Then I'm working on a book called Made For You. I'm doing a, a major edit 
in August and September. And I have October, November, December, January, February, five months to write fifth uh, flight plan. Wow, that's exciting. I'm I'm a big fan of the series. I, I think there's, I mean, it's like you were literally looking through the grade eight curriculum and different things that you could, uh, as a teacher, bring into stuff. But um, Aditya, that I think answers your question without answering your question and we'll hopefully make you flip a page, but- um, Just watch out for Brent. Yeah, we can open it up to the rest of the class. Does anyone have anything? That includes the people that might have that have already asked a question. If there's any anything burning in your mind, okay, then I'm going to go and play Thomas the Train for a while with my <laughs> three-year-old grandson. That sounds like a very very good thing to do. Time to play Thomas. <laughs> Fair enough. I am uh, I am much more of a Paw Patrol character on a daily basis with my two year old. Then we are going to watch Paw Patrol today. Yeah, there's no question, and we're gonna have some Paw Patrol treats at some point today. Those are, <laughs> those are guaranteed. Does your two year old? It, it, there's something about Paw Patrol that has this lock in thing. They stare at it, and they just you it's, can practically put your hand in front of their face. Yep. Yeah, there's uh, that and Peppa and uh, Bubble Guppies, I would say, is probably her transfixed go-to. But We're also yeah. going to watch Trash. Trash Track. Oh, Trash Track is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the episode we're going to watch today is Olivia Surfs. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I know what's coming. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a difficult school year. You've worked hard to get through this. Please, please, please. Let's just take care of each other right now. Be kind, be caring, and be particularly kind to the people who are going through the most, the ones that are keeping the world together, postal workers, uh, UPS workers, uh, policemen, doctors, nurses, teachers, and your parents have been going through a lot to make this work. So let's be kind to everybody. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Mr. Walters. It's a pleasure. You guys take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.